Hey, podcast family, welcome to the controversial topics portion of Clinical Pearls. I mean, sometimes things are so straightforward. It's like, hey, do this or that. That's evidence-based practice. But sometimes some of the stuff is a little controversial, like the topic here today, which is cesarean section hysterotomy closure. There's a lot to cover, but I want to focus just on one aspect of hysterotomy closure, which is whether or not to include the decidua, all right? The transformed endometrium in pregnancy known as the decidua. So very easy, two main camps here as we set the stage for what we're going to cover. It's either through and through, which means go through the muscle, through the basalis layer, through the transformed endometrium, and then the same on the other side to close the defect, or do you exclude the decidua? So that's what we're focusing on, right? Now, there's a lot of other factors here that go into play like single layer, dual layer, locking or not locking, and then suture type. I am going to touch on suture type just for a moment because that's the easiest one to do, but we'll leave off single layer or double layer locked or not locking for another time. But in this episode, specifically as it relates to post-cesarean uterine niche defect creation, we're going to tackle whether the evidence says to include the decidua or to exclude the decidua. I received a message not long ago from one of our family listeners uh, that said, hey, you know, I've heard that you shouldn't include the decidua, but I've had a faculty member who says, oh no, you go straight through and through just like on a myomectomy at a gynecology case. But there's big differences with that approach. A closure of a uterus that's gynecological is much different than closure of a wound that's obstetrical. So we're going to cover this issue of to use the endometrium or not to use the endometrium at closure in this episode. So let's cover niche defect, use full thickness closure or not. Let's cover that in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So first we have to define what this uterine niche defect actually is because in some publications it's called the most common name, which is what we're calling it here, the uterine niche defect, while some other reports call it a saculation syndrome or saculation occurrence, um, or some simply call it, describe it, uh, what it is as a endometrial outpouching into the myometrium. But the most commonly used term is this uterine niche. So what happens is, if you've never heard of this thing, I mean, it's always a hot topic uh, in gynecology, especially at AAGL, because there's been a variety of different approaches out there to try to correct this thing. Uh, There's been resectoscope approaches, uh, uh, stitching uh, approaches with hysteroscopy. Um, There's been vaginal approaches that have tried to do this. So there's all these different techniques on how to fix this thing. And the first question is, well, why do we have to fix it just because it's there? And the answer is, well, you don't fix it just because it's there. You fix it if it's there and it's causing problems. In the gynecology world, 
this is likely linked to accumulation of menstrual blood, uh, debris, and it's been linked to uh, dysfunctional bleeding or abnormal uh, uterine bleeding, heavy menstrual bleeding, intermenstrual uh, spotting, and it's been linked to dysmenorrhea as blood collects there. More importantly, there's also been some case reports where they've actually found uh, uh, nodules or foci of cystic adenomyosis in these defects. That's been published uh, through JMIG, Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology, as well. So it's not just that it's an anatomical defect. I mean, it is basically a herniation uh, of the endometrium into the, the lower uterine segment, which obviously is not good. It's not good for gynecology, and it's probably not good for, for future pregnancies because that can also affect abnormal placentation. All right. So we see how what happens in one world in obstetrics doesn't just live there. It's not Vegas. It does leave Vegas and go and affects other things like gynecology. And it can present with abnormal bleeding, dysmenorrhea, in some cases infertility, and in the worst cases in obstetrics, abnormal placentation. So this uterine scar defect, okay, this niche defect uh, is a big thing. There's obviously been reports of ectopic pregnancy in the history scar in that niche defect as well. So this is a real thing. Now, even though we don't have all of the pathophysiology flushed out here, right? Because I've been following this thing for like 20 years. Um, we actually published something. We did a trial with an endometrial device back in the day called ThermaChoice. And we actually published that you could do ThermaChoice ablation, which was a hot water balloon um, inside the uterine cavity, even above uh, where the niche defect was because the balloon was placed above this as the uh, niche was in the high cervical area and the ablation, of course, was uterine cavity, right? So remember what we call a low transverse C-section in the non-contractile part of the uterus. Remember that that lower uterine segment uh, doesn't exist in gynecology, right? That there's no lower uterine segment in a non-pregnant uterus. That's, that's a third trimester finding. And that's a result of the top of the cervix being drawn upwards. That's what causes cervical effacement. So what we cut in a low transverse C-section, in fact, is high cervical. That's why if you take a look at most nursing documentation, it's low transverse high cervical. It is a, it is not, we don't want to cut below the cervix, but a low transverse C-section in the non-contractile portion technically is anatomically the upper part of the cervix, right? That becomes the thinned out and ballooned lower uterine segment. Does that make sense? So in the gynecology world, this is why you can do an ablation because that scar defect is below. Now that raises a question here. How is that involved with abnormal placentation? If, if this is uh, uh, below the level of the, of the cavity uh, in, in gynecology, why then would that affect implantation? And it probably has to do not so much with the anatomy of it, but more with the abnormal blood flow associated with it. Does that make sense? And again, any kind of there's a weird defect in the uterus. Again, there has been linked. Uh, there has been links to ectopic pregnancy, but most of these associations aren't with abnormal placentation. But again, this is much more of a gynecological issue with abnormal uterine bleeding, intramenstrual bleeding, and of course dysmenorrhea. This little wedge-shaped defect was first described on an HSG by Poitavin. That was in 1961, 
Poitavin. And of course, since then, there's been other reports of showing this little defect in patients with just even one previous C-section doesn't require multiple C-sections. This name of the niche defect goes back to 2001 with Monteagudo, who first described this as a little room or a niche in 2001. And the journal where that was done was in the Journal of Ultrasound in Medicine. Again, Monteagudo in the Journal of Ultrasound in medicine. And of course, since that, there's been all this litany of different reports. Again, whether it's a saculation or a niche has been reported on ultrasound, like we published on with the ThermaChoice device, has been looked at with um, uh, HSG and even with uh, 3D rendering where you can actually see this little outpouching. And of course, it's visible on uterine MRI, but you don't need an MRI for this. This can be looked at and, and diagnosed just on regular sagittal imaging of a good resolution ultrasound uh, that's transvaginal. And as we've already stated, it's not like one factor that if you do this or don't do that, you won't get a C-section niche defect, okay? Because there's a lot of factors that, that can influence this, including whether the patient is infected. I mean, if the myometrium, if the, the, if the decidua is infected, uh, and if there's metritis, this also affects wound integrity. So that's a big factor. Now, we're going to touch on, on suture type here very quickly in just a minute, because that's the easy one. One to answer, right? So, hey, whether you use monocryl or vicryl or chromic, uh, just close it correctly. That seems to be the latest data because this was looked at just in November of 2022 in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the pink journal, not the gray journal, but the pink journal, which is AJOG's MFM edition. Right, So in November of last year, 2022, they actually did a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials to see which kind of suture material would be the best in terms of hysterotomy closure. Okay, And the short of it is, yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, of all the factors that could affect wound integrity, suture material probably is the least of the issues, right? So you have, again, locking versus non-locking, single versus dual layer, uh, full thickness versus non-full thickness, which we're talking about in this episode. But the short of it is, let me give you the conclusion regarding suture material. Because if somebody ever tells you, oh, I only close with monocryl, fantastic, knock yourself out, uh, or I only use Vicryl. Okay, that's your preference because the data doesn't really seem to show that one or the other makes a stronger incision or is more protective for TOLAC in the future or, or, or helpful regarding the niche defect. As this meta-analysis from November 2022 states, quote, this meta-analysis does not support a specific type of suture material for uterine closure at cesarean delivery because of insufficient data. Although barbed suture was associated with an overall decrease in operative time and use of conventional monofilament suture has been associated with an increase in uterine scar thickness, the clinical utility of these differences is not clear, end quote. So in other words, after doing this big meta-analysis and systematic review, the authors came up with, hey, as long as it's nothing weird, like you're using steel wire to close the uterus, which at one time was done, um, then there's pretty much no data that one suture type is better than the other, not just for scar uh, creation, uh, but specifically as we're talking about in this episode for the niche defect. 
I love the messages that we get from our listenership, from our podcast family members, because I'm talking about 95% are like, hey, great topic. You know, it, I, I learned X, Y, or Z, which I really love. That's very encouraging for me. It's a lot of work to get these things up and out and make them evidence-based. Uh, and, and a few are, of course, and you got to take the, the not so good with the good, right? Are like, well, I can't believe you said X, Y, or Z. Yeah, we get that as well. Fine. If you don't like that, you start your own episode. Start your own podcast. Um, <laughs> do your own thing. I mean, my goodness. Um, but we respond to those as well. Uh, one of the comments that I got was, um, hey, I love your episodes. I love the info, super evidence-based, yada, yada. But all the history behind the stuff, do we really need to know that? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, you do. Because if you don't realize where you've been, you you take for granted what you've got. The history of stuff is super important. Plus, I find that super interesting. And it's a good conversation piece. Like we're going to do the history of closure of the hysterotomy right now. So for that person who doesn't like all the history in our episodes, uh, too bad. <laughs> I think it's so, so interesting. L- listen to this. Did you all know that hysterotomy closure is a relatively new deal? I mean, like late 19th century, because before that, the hysterotomies weren't closed. The, the thought was, yeah, take that in for a second. The, the thought was, hey, you can't put any kind of foreign material in there. One, we don't have sutures. It was all steel wire. And that stuff is going to uh, give the patient a sterility. Not to mention the fact that if they bleed to death, uh, they have worse things than sterility, like death to contend with. But nonetheless, let that soak in for a minute that when hysterect- that when hysterotomies were first being made for C-sections, uh, yeah, they were not closed. Now, remember, the first kind of C-section done was by Max Sanger, okay, where we get the Sanger C-section. It's Sanger. He was German. Uh, in, 19, in 1882, how about that? Late 19th century, 1882, Max Sanger was the first one who, on his vertical uterine hysterotomy, said, I, I think we should close this. And they called the three patients, the end of three, the Sanger sisters. They were not related, okay? But Sanger st- said, hey, we got to close this to reduce the risk of bleeding because um, infection is one thing, uh, but this bleeding issue is real. I mean, we, we got to close the uterus. We can't leave it open. That was a thing. The thought was as the uterus contracts down, it's going to stop those blood vessels from bleeding. So they put pressure on it uh, and then just let it heal by itself. Wild. So Max Sanger in 1882 uh, was the first one to really describe the actual cutting of the uterus vertically and suturing and approximating it. But listen to this, guys. Here's the catch, right? Here's the pearl. Sanger, if you take a look at the original writing, which you can find in an archive, actually stated to avoid the decidua. He said, you don't want that stuff. That stuff is going to shed. It's kind of gross looking. Uh, It's all inflamed and it's vascular. And you want to avoid putting that potentially endometrial tissue into the incision because it could potentially weaken the incision. Wow. Now, I know what your thought is. What the hell does he know? I mean, it's 1882. It's not like there's been a history of this. This guy's coming up with this thing on the fly. And you're right. Okay. But he was on to something there because here's a spoiler uh, yeah, he was right. We've got data for that, okay? I know someone's going to find an article where that's not the case. I know those. But the majority, the bulk of the data says don't include it. So I've already spilled the beans, all right? But let, let, me, let, me, let me continue. Uh, after Sanger did his C-section, then came Monroe Kerr. Right, so Monroe Kerr was in 1926. So Sanger C-section enjoyed his 
his ride to notoriety from the uh, 1880s, really until the 1920s. And then Monroe Kerr, from where we get the Kerr incision, the low transverse C-section, said... Man, why don't we cut in this thinner portion? Doesn't that make much more sense? <laughs> Let's cut down here. It doesn't bleed as much. Um, and, and we can call this the Kerr C-section versus the Sanger. So this was the low transverse C-section in the non-contractile portion, 1926. And guess what? Kerr said, approximate the layers. Bring them in good opposition. Don't strangulate them. And he also cautioned to keep the decidua away from the uterine closure. Now, Sanger had to close in multiple layers because obviously the uterus is very thick, going up and down. But Monroe Kerr also used a two-layer closure that kept the decidua out of the incision. Okay? So all until that time, honestly until the 70s, and I'm going to tell you what happened in the 70s, the idea was to not include the decidua. Not because we had hysterectomy samples, not because we had the niche defect. But just because the idea of this vascular, decidualized, progesterized, uh, glandular tissue probably shouldn't be within the wall of the uterus. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. So let's go from 1926 to the 1970s, where now it's, it's, a, it's a thing for speed and there's new techniques. There's Joel Cohen comes on the scene. Uh, Michael Stark comes up with the Stark C-section, Miss Gavlatic, all different ways to get into the abdomen, right? Whether it's sharp dissection or blunt dissection. But during this switch, there was also a change from how to enter the abdomen from sharp dissection to blunt dissection to now doing uh, a, a kind of through and through closure. So get the big muscle, go all the way through into the cavity, and then go into the decidua, and then go out through the muscle and do it kind of in masse. Okay, so that was in block closure, whether it was single or double closure. So in the 70s, this really changed from avoiding the decidua, which was the historical norm, to now using a through and through incision. So where is the data? From the 70s to now, what does the data look like? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's cover that next. Oh, wait a minute. Before I leave this quick history section, uh, I do want to say something else about the time before Sanger, okay? So the hysterotomies were not closed. And and to be honest, it, it's, yeah, that didn't fare well. But but some patients actually did all right, believe it or not. Go figure. Uh, uh, but the other issue was that without closing the hysterotomy, some patients actually, I mean, getting a C-section was like a last resort, right? I mean, literally like the last thing you'll ever do from reproduction because they, they got a hysterectomy at that time. That was called the porro or the porro cesarean hysterectomy approach. So... Uh, it wasn't standard to to just leave the uterus non-sutured. I mean, in some cases, they just said, well, you're just going to bleed after this. Or if the bleeding was not well contained, then they just proceeded immediately to cesarean hysterectomy. All right. So Sanger had, had a big role here, not only for describing uterine closure, but it really did lead to, to significant improvements with cesarean birth because now women didn't have to uh, lose their uterus uh, and obviously reduce the rate of two things, uh, severe hemorrhage and, and sepsis. Those two things went greatly down because of Sanger's contribution to, to use steel very thin steel wire uh, to close the, the uterus. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You really do have to have some kind of thick skin or be a glutton for punishment to kind of get your name out there, kind of be out there and take the good with the bad. I mean, I get, guys, just for you to know, I mean, I get some weird stuff, all right, from messages that we put. uh, I can't even get into it. Um, Because somebody just wants to fight with you. And you know what my answer is? Brother, my life is too short to be dealing with all that. I mean, just, you know, if you didn't like the episode, just cancel it from your list. I mean, you're not hurting my feelings. Um, Well, that's not true. I mean, it kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. Uh, But it is kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, I've been doing this for a while. and, And it's so crazy because we all got issues. And as you all know, and if you just if this is your first episode you're listening to congrats uh but i say it all the time i got issues man i mean I'll, i'm gonna say it i mean it's i'm not perfect i i don't claim to know everything um and i got issues um and so when i get a message that like oh i hate your all the history you put in that Ugh, i'm like damn i mean maybe maybe i shouldn't do that and and i really carry that i'm like oh my product sucks i mean you know no one's listening honestly this is my own negative bias right uh, and man, I, I have a whole TED talk on that is how our negativity bias, uh, really go, takes us into, has a capacity to take us to some dark places. I mean, I'm not immune to that. Um, all to say is uh, I appreciate all the nice comments and all the encouragement and, and the, the not so nice ones I also like, cause it helps me make the, the podcast episodes better. But yeah, man, I mean, some of that stuff, I mean, it just kind of, kind of wounds you a little bit. All right. What the hell was I saying? Oh, okay, okay, okay. So look at the data. So let's get back to the data on this thing, uh, on on closure and not closure of, of, of the decidua. Boy, I kind of went into a weird place there. Uh, I, I like, listen to this publication. You talk about uh, data that's current, okay? Because this first came out as a publication ahead of print in 2021 and then formally in print in 2022 in the Journal of Ultrasound in Medicine. This is a kind of a cool study, all right? This came out July of last year, literally just like a year ago, uh, and the lead author was uh, Clarel uh, Antone, right? The title is The Impact of Uterine Incision Closure Techniques on Post-Cesarean Delivery Niche Formation and Size, Sonohistrographic Examination of Non-Pregnant Women. How about that? Did y'all get that? That's a lot in there. So short of it is, hey, they did sections. Okay, they were standardized to you close the wound this way, you close the wound that way. I'm telling you which one it is in just a minute. Well, it's easy. Include the endometrium or don't. <laughs> and then afterwards, come back and get a, a sonohistogram, and then we're going to see who forms the niche. Kind of cool, right? And this isn't historic. Again, wasn't in the 80s. I mean, we're talking about this was published July of last year. So super cool. So, okay, you, you need the section. You got your section. Uh, now, remember, this is just looking at that one factor. Did they include the endometrium or not? Not single layer, double layer, closed. So again, a lot of other factors. Infection, no infection, none of that. This was to look at the creation of niche in women following cesarean delivery based on closure technique. And there was just two groups. There was group A, which was endometrium-free, and then group B, which was um, routine non-endometrium-free. That's what they say. I'm reading it right here. Routine non-endometrium-free. Non-endometrium-free. Let me just process that for a minute. Why can't you just say including the endometrium? Good Lord have mercy. So group A was endometrium-free. Group B 
in Chapa's version is no endometrium. Just say it like that. Ugh. All right. So they had 45 women who underwent SIS. 25 had uh, technique A. Remember, that's no endometrium. And then 20 had technique B, which was using the endometrium. So full thickness. Okay, yada, yada, statistics, statistics, controlling, controlling. The short of it is hysterotomy closure that avoided the endometrium, the decidua, okay? Exclusion of the endometrium reduced the development of scar defects in a statistically significant manner. Everybody good? So, yes, apparently not using the endometrium as part of your closure uh, was better. And so you're thinking, well, why would that even matter? Because remember, we're talking about endometrial glands and stroma that are weakened, that then regress, right? It's all engorged and full uh, and, and and juicy. Is that a weird word to use? And then, I mean, it's full of blood. And then you put that into the wound. Well, then it regresses postpartum. Potentially, you have a niche. So uh, I'm going to give you more data. This is just one. I get it. But it was a pretty neat study because it actually divided. We knew how they closed them, decidua-free uh, decidua or, or decidua-including. And then they did an SIS. And those that were full thickness had higher prevalence of niche formation. Jeffrey is one of our podcast family members, and he had sent me this message some time ago asking about this very issue. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a, an episode out. Well, it's finally here, although it's been, I think it's been a couple of months or several months. But nonetheless, Jeffrey, I finally got to it, okay? And in some of our conversation uh, through Messenger, uh, I, I mentioned a publication by uh, an old buddy of mine who's actually uh, French-Canadian. He's in Quebec, right? That's Emmanuel Bujold. Man, that joker's one smart dude. Um, you got to look uh, up his data because he's focused on on uterine healing uh, at uh, a time of cesarean section. So one of his publications goes back to 2012. Yeah, a decade ago. Now you know me, right? I'm I'm using this as historical norm, but but I'm just building the case because I'm going to give you more current data, obviously. But even a decade ago, this idea of leaving the endometrium out of the incision. Uh, was getting a lot of love, right? So this was published out of the North American uh, Journal of Medical Science in 2012. And again, the lead author was Emmanuel Bujold. And the title was The Optimal Uterine Closure Technique During Cesarean. Ooh, I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? But hang on there for a minute. I mean, simmer down because... The first thing he says is, well, we don't really know what the optimal is. <laughs> I mean, there's some data. Is it two layers? Is it single layers? Is it locking or non-locking? And there is an answer for that. And it's probably not what you think. But I, I may touch on that at the end of the episode. But we can do another one for that because there's a lot there. There's a lot there. But one thing that is kind of uh, clearer, much more established versus the other, uh, you know, two-layer versus single-layer uh, is the the absence of decidual tissue in the incision. That pretty much is is the established criterion as best practice. So in this article, Bujold reminds us of a study by Babu and Megan. Okay, Babu and Megan. And they they actually gave a technique of how to close the uterus. And oddly enough, I mean, mind-blowing, they're like approximate layers well. Wow, thanks, brother. I mean... <laughs> That's fantastic. Approximate layers. Well, I never thought of that. And the idea is don't just throw stitches and whip it stitch together, but actually make deliberate to bring myometrum to myometrum, non-strangulating, an appropriate technique. 
I think we take C-sections so for, for granted, uh, be, partially because they're so frequent, and it's just everything is so gross movements. Right? It's very large. It's not fine micro, you know, vascular or uh, like in the past we used to do tubal microanastomoses with the little loops, uh, and you know, eight O or ten O suture. We don't do that anymore. These are very gross bites of tissue because everything is so big. But Babu and Magan actually published and, and showed that the best way to close a hysterotomy is by careful approximation of the layers and leaving the decidua out. Now, they did say close the decidua itself, right? So use that as a separate layer, but don't bring it through the incision. Now, you're like, how do you do that? Yeah, I'm not sure. But the point uh, is you do a, 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 the, an innermost layer to close the decidua by itself and then leave that alone and then do myometrial approximation by itself. So in other words, kind of layer by layer. But the main take-home as it relates to what we're talking about here is that they found that leaving the decidua out of the end mass closure, out of the myometrum, led to the to the lowest risk of having a defect by ultrasound six months later, all right? So lots to say there, except the short avenue is if, if you're not going to fix, close the basalis layer in its own layer, then just don't include it at all with the malmetrum. That's the take-home. That publication by Babu and, and Megan was published in the North American Journal of Medical Science, the same one that uh, that Bujo published in again in 2012. So I'll post both of these references on our reference list. Now let's springboard forward back to more present day to another publication by an author we've already discussed, which is Antone, okay? Uh, back to the Journal of Maternal Fetal Neonatal Medicine from 2019. This also is pretty neat. Now this doesn't focus necessarily on the finding of the niche defect, but it looked at abnormal placentation following C-section whether or not that closure at time of C-section included the endometrial decidual layer or not. Does that make sense? So it wasn't an ultrasound, wasn't an SIS. It was, hey, let's go back 30 years, which is what it spanned. This was a retrospective study uh, spanning 30 years and included patients who had a C-section from their third up to their ninth consecutive cesarean delivery. How about that, right? Yeah, some of those patients are out there. Uh, to look to see if those who had endometrium-free cesarean closure technique, uh, how many of those ended up having abnormal placentation? Pretty cool, right? I mean, that, that, that's exactly what we're looking for here. So it is uh, it's still in our wheelhouse of what we're talking about, of non-closure of the, uh, non-inclusion of the endometrium, although not so much looking at, at the niche defect, but as a consequence of that, which is abnormal placentation. Fine. Well, the short of it is, this was not prospective, though it was retrospective, but they did control for a lot of the factors. So on this one retrospective study that spanned 30 years, on patients who had anywhere from their third to their ninth consecutive C-section, they found no cases of abnormal placentation in follow-up pregnancies when the closure was endometrium-free. How about that? And as the authors of this publication state, quote, this was one of the few clinical studies of the long-term consequences of uterine closure that did not include the endometrial or the basalis layer. How about that? So it just goes to show that bringing in the, the myometrium into the scar, possibly, it looks like based on the data, uh, should be avoided, okay? 
So what, what are, again, not the one thing that if you do this, it's never going to happen. But if you do this one thing, it can re- greatly reduce the chances that it happens. Of course, you have to control for uh, you know, tension on the suture, make sure it's not strangulating. That's why lock sutures actually may contribute to, to weakness. I mean, scary, right? I mean, that, that's the tradition. You want to lock the suture because it's nice and hemostatic. Uh, no, that doesn't really help. I mean, it can, when you compare locked single-layer suture versus non-locking, the amount of bleeding is the same. Plus, on some studies, using that locked layer may actually strangulate the tissue even more. So there really does not seem to be any big benefit to locking uh, a, a layer, especially on single-layer closure. How about that? Let that sit in for a minute. But that may be another episode. So it seems to be better approximation. First of all, make sure the decision is nice and clean. Look at your edges. You can either close the innermost layer, which I'm not going to do, as a separate layer, or just bring together the myometrium just above the endometrial myometrial junction. Okay, uh, but sparing that junction, because that's another thought, is that the, the damage between the endometrial uh, and, and myometrium barrier, that, that area where the old nittle box uh, layer was, you know, the nittle box layer, what the hell is that? You got to go back and look at that. <laughs> it's the area of, of abnormal myometrium inner surface where, uh, interface where placenta creta happens, okay, nittle box layer. Uh, is probably not to include right at that endometrial layer, but just above it to keep the the endomyometrial junction uh, w- without injury. Okay, so short of it is avoid the endometrium, avoid the endomyometrial junction, and just close the myometrium, and bleeding should be fine, uh, and and the chance of having a niche defect seems to be lower. Now you may need to do it in more than one layer, especially if it's very thick. But try to avoid the endometrium and just get just above, don't, don't get right into the innermost layer. Just go just above it because that's not what's bleeding anyway, right? What's bleeding is the open sinuses in the myometrium, is myometrial vessels. So you do not need to include the endometrium or the endomyometrial junction. That seems to be what the data is showing. I just want to tell you that that's not my theory. It's not my thought. I mean, this whole thing of excluding the endometrium myometrial junction was published back in 2012 in the journal Placenta. How about that? There's a journal named Placenta. Guess what it talks about? The Placenta. I mean, God, that's it. So it's Janioks and uh, Jerkovic that published the pathogenesis of a 20th century iatrogenic uterine disease, Placenta accreta. Wow, that's a cool title, huh? Placenta accreta, the pathogenesis of a 20th century iatrogenic uterine disease. Ooh, nothing like throwing caregivers under the bus, huh? It's all iatrogenic. Well, one of the factors that they discuss here is that destruction of that endometrium, myometrium border, that middle box layer by putting stitches in that. Wow. So again, it's not mine, Journal Placenta in 2012. If you're interested, I'll post that as our 10th reference uh, on this episode on our reference list. Okay, everyone, one final reference for us, which will round out our reference list at number 11. Uh, which, what, by the way, did you see how much work it takes to put on one episode? I mean, by the way, we, we did the 11 references, right? We reviewed like 22 pieces of, of data and abstracts and articles to see what we were going to include and what not, what really fit and what didn't. Um, and others were like, yeah, had nothing to do with it. We're not going to use that. So it, it, honestly, and I'm not complaining. I'm just letting you know, to, to get an episode out um, 
from data gathering to vetting the articles to uh, making sure that the, the, the burden of evidence is legit, cross-referencing with ACOG or SMFM if they've got a statement, then so that takes, you know, hours. Uh, sometimes it takes days. And then from actually doing, let's say this episode goes for 40 minutes. If we do a 40-minute episode, you all know that it takes like an hour and a half. Uh, to two hours based on how random I get. And then I take a break and then I walk around and then they get mad because I'm taking too long. And then I come back. So it's a whole it's a whole process. Why am I telling you this? Oh, yeah. So this is the 11th. Res- let's end this thing with the 11th reference that has to do with techniques. And, and they're interesting findings. But if you don't account for that endometrial inclusion or exclusion into the closure, not sure what it really means. It really is kind of interesting what people take a look at trying to get to the heart of this ismacil, you know, cesarean scar, niche defect. Yes, ismacil is the other term for that. Um, And there's all these things that have been published recently trying to avoid it. And, And they're good studies. But if you don't really take into account and stratify and account for the inclusion of the endometrium, then fancy stuff is it's really unclear if if that's really doing anything. There was a publication that came out in May of 2019. That's an RCT. It's out of Turkey. Okay, so this group of Turkish uh, physicians published in the Journal of Investigative Surgery, and the title is "An Optimal Uterine Closure Technique for Better Scar Healing and Avoiding Ismacil in Cesarean Section," an RCT. All right. All right. So this is exactly what we're talking about, right? What is the best technique here? So I I saw this. Again, it was published May 2019. And I'm like, all right, let's get to it. How do they stratify um, whether they or not they, they included the endometrium or not? Short answer is, that's not what they looked at at all. I mean, so it's a good paper. I mean, it's interesting. And it was an RCT. I mean, it's level one evidence. And and they did this prospective randomized control study on 138 patients. And half of them had a, a, a kind of closure that was single layer continuous locking. Okay, that's kind of what everybody does. And then the other group had a, which was the, uh, called the, the study group, versus the control. Control was the single layer continuous locked. The study group had a double layer closure and it was far, far near, near. All right, everybody good? So the first layer was uh, far, far away from the incision, uh, away from the opening uh, or the lumen of the the hysterotomy. And then they loop across and then do a near, near uh, closure. Okay, so far, far near, near, that's a double layer closure or a single layer continuous. All right, fine. The short of it is they found, wow, it seems that the far, far, near, near uh, was a lot better at at, at protecting against the uh, niche defect as opposed to the single layer locking. And you're like, well, how did they know that? Well, they did the closure. And then uh, about six months after the surgery, then they looked uh, for an ismacil with a saline infusion ultrasound. Okay, so it's interesting. And in this case, they're like, oh, far, far, near, near seems to work. Again, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, well, that it is interesting. Okay, but wouldn't it have also been good to do a sub-analysis on endometrial closure or not? Because that actually wasn't, wasn't addressed in this study. Okay, peeps, I think we're going to call it a day. Okay, I think this was, I made the point. Um, so here's the thing. We got to just uh, ideally standardize C-section, right? There's been plenty of articles. There's like 10 that I found 
over the last 10 years on standardization of C-section. But as some authors and commentators have stated, hey, you can standardize in a bad way, and that's even worse than having no standardization. So if you're going to standardize, obviously be evidence-based. So if we're going to standardize, then let's do it right. But but you see how hard it is? Because people love their locking uterine suture, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you think that's a lot better than a single non-locking, that's, that's opinion. That's not evidence-based. Wow. If you, if you say, oh, I'm, I close every uterus with a two-layer closure. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, data's unclear if that actually does anything, even with Tolax. Ugh. So, so there's a lot of factors in here. But the one thing that the data does seem to at least point heavy, right? The burden of the evidence leans, like on Seesaw, it's leaning towards... So the heavier weighted, uh, the fatter member, I guess you would say, the heavier on the Seesaw says to not include the endometrium. Now, what happens in gynecology is totally different because that's not a decidua. That's endometrium. Probably shouldn't close it in the in the gyne- in a gynecological case either. But definitely at C-section, it seems to be that avoiding the endometrium, the decidua, for a lot of reasons, mainly hormonal, glandular, and and um, uh, and and the change in architecture of the endometrium. And I know we've been saying endometrium. It's actually the the decidua, right? Putting that into the myometrium probably number one doesn't add any benefit and potentially could be hurtful. Do y'all get that? So the question is, is this is somehow including it into the wound helpful? It doesn't seem to be. Could it be harmful? It possibly seems to be. So anyway, I hope you found that helpful. And as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad that you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you in another episode of Clinical Pearls.